As Amanda comes up to read scripture this morning, let me just preface this by saying we're about to read a passage of scripture that is very, very difficult, and I think you'll see why. The reason I'm bringing this up is if you're newer to Christ Church East, one of the things that you'll know or notice or get to know is that we preach through books of the Bible. And that means we preach through the Bible because it's all God's word and even the hard sections we don't shy away from. And that is true today. And so we're gonna hit it head on. Uh, But I want you to hear this because all of God's word is God's word. We don't pick and choose what is comfortable and what we like. It's all from God, okay? And therefore, it's fruitful for our lives and for our hearts. Amanda. Today's sermon comes from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 15. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all, for who all are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. on a dangerous seacoast where shipwrecks often happen, there was a a life-saving station. It was a little hut, had one boat, had a few members that committed to going out to sea and rescuing people whose ships had wrecked in this notorious area. And these members would go out with not a concern for their lives to rescue people that were in need. And as they would rescue people, these people would be so grateful for this life-saving station that they would want to join it and they would want to be a part of it and they would give their money and their time and their effort towards going back out and rescuing others that were shipwrecked. But over time, a few of the members of this life-saving station became really concerned that the conditions in this little hut were too shabby uh, and that it wasn't nice enough. And they thought that certainly these people being rescued, that their first refuge needed to be a nicer, more comfortable place. So they replaced the cots with beds and they brought in really nice furniture and they interior designed it and decorated it and made it just a beautiful place. It became a place where the members actually just came to hang out. 
And as they did that, and the conditions now in this station were plush, they were less willing to go out to rescue these people from their shipwreck. So they hired surrogates or they hired workers that would go out and do it. So they hire these workers to do it. One dark, stormy night, large ship wrecked off the coast. And these hired workers started bringing in boatloads of, of half-drowned, wet, almost dying people. They didn't smell good. It was an absolute mess. And they started bringing these boatloads into the station and it got to be overwhelming and it was a traumatic situation. And the members that were in the station said, we need to build outbuildings. We need to build more buildings so that when something like this happens, they can take them to those buildings and not disrupt the station. Now, that parable is a picture of this church in Ephesus that Timothy pastored and that Paul was writing to. The church at Ephesus, five years earlier than this letter, had been a church that was faithful to God's word. It was a church that was reaching people with the good news of Jesus. It was on mission. It was like the poster child of a church that was alive. And five years later, they had forgotten their mission. They had lost the gospel. As we see, have seen, bad doctrine started coming in. It had become an elitist social club of people that could only learn the higher stuff and that's how you fit in. You say, how does that happen to a church over a mere five years? Well, let me flip the question around and ask it in a positive way. How does a church remain faithful to the gospel mission so that this situation in Ephesus nearly 2,000 years ago doesn't happen. How does a church remain faithful to the gospel mission? First, by praying God's desires. Now, what is God's desire? What is God's desire? Verses three to four. This is good, speaking of prayer, and it's pleasing in sight, in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, what does that mean that God desires all people to be saved? Well, from the rest of the scripture, it's clear that God doesn't will every person on the face of the earth to be saved. Because if God wills something, it happens. If God wills something, it happens. Scripture's clear that not everyone is saved. In fact, in Romans chapter 11, Paul is speaking of his fellow Jews who have rejected Christ. And he says in, in verse 14 of Romans 11, and thus save some of them. 1 Corinthians 11, chapter 9, verse 22, Paul says, to the weak, I become weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means, I might save some. So if the scriptures are clear 
that not everyone is saved, then what does it mean that God desires all to be saved? Well, understand the context of this church in Ephesus. It had become an inward-looking, cliquish, social elite type of church. And so it's to this church that Paul says and reminds that God's desire is for all kinds of people to be saved, all kinds of people groups to be saved, Jew and Gentile, not just a preferred group of people, but all kinds of people. That's what the all means. In fact, the first six verses of chapter two, the word all appears numerous times. Verse one, prayers be made for all people. Verse two, for kings and all who are in high positions. Verse four, who desires all people to be saved. Verse six, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Close-knit groups can become insular. And what I mean by insular is an insular group is one that is ignorant or uninterested in people outside of one's own experience. Be another way of saying cliquish, same idea. John Stott was pastor of All Souls Church in London for many years. And he speaks of the monopoly spirit of which we need to repent. And then he gives examples such as racism, nationalism, tribalism, classism, and parochialism, which simply means having a limited or narrow outlook, together with the pride and prejudice which are the cause of these narrow horizons. Paul is exhorting Timothy here to not let the scope of this church's prayer or evangelistic concern get shrink down to a tiny little preferred people group. The gospel's for all kinds of people, all kinds of people. God desires all kinds of people to be saved. The question is, how are they saved? Verse five, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. In a church that had become enamored with these speculative genealogies and myths, this kind of special information, this special knowledge, this strange doctrine, they had completely lost sight of the only go-between between God and man, and that's Jesus Christ. Romans 5.1, we have peace with God through not our good works, not being a good person, not going to church, not praying, not going to a Bible study. We have peace with God, not, not through having perfect doctrine theology. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, period. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And at the end of your life, you're gonna face God and you're gonna face this mediator. Hebrews 9, 27, 
And just as it was appointed for man to die once, everybody dies once, and after that comes judgment. When you stand before God in judgment, there's only one answer that's gonna spare you the judgment that would cast you away from him eternally. There's one answer, it's Jesus Christ. Lived a perfect life for you, died in your place. Jesus is the only mediator that takes a sinful person and unites them and creates peace with their maker. Jesus is the mediator. So if God desires all kinds of people to be saved and if salvation only comes through Jesus Christ, then how should that affect our prayers? How should you pray? Verse one, prayers made for all people. Verse two, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Now, this is where it's really important to understand that when you read your Bible, you read it through a cultural lens. The culture you live in can influence the way you interpret the Bible. And so most of us will read this verse and specifically the phrase, a peaceful and quiet life, and interpret that to mean a nice middle-class life that is free from stress. That is not what this means at all. In fact, Paul is exhorting Timothy in regards to this church that has become very me-centered and inward-focused. The peaceful and quiet life is not a prayer for comfort. It's a prayer for the gospel to go forth. Peaceful and quiet life means political, social, economic stability that would pave the way for the good news of Jesus Christ to make its way out into the world. Now, we don't know this and we don't understand how blessed we are to live in this country, but much of the world does not know political, economic, and social stability. In fact, 21st century alone has been just run over with refugee situations, international refugee crises. In fact, we're seeing it right now with the people that are fleeing, fleeing the Ukraine, where you have people that are in the midst of such chaos and such disorder and such instability that they would choose to risk their lives in a leaky boat than to stay in the situation that they're in, where there's chaos, disorder, lethal threats. Their lives are in danger. So what we see here, though we don't understand what it's like to live in political, social, or economic instability, much of the world does. And when we pray for this peaceful and quiet life, that's what we're praying for. Certainly that it would remain here, but for around the world. This is a call to be a world Christian. This is a call to pray for the world. 
John Stott reflects on this. He said, some years ago, I attended public worship in a certain church. The pastor was absent on holiday and a lay elder led the pastoral prayer. He prayed that the pastor might enjoy a good vacation, which was fine, and that two lady members of the congregation might be healed, which was also fine. We should pray for the sick. But that was all. The intercession can hardly have lasted 30 seconds. I came away saddened, sensing that this church worshiped a little village God of their own devising. There was no recognition of the needs of the world and no attempt to embrace the world in prayer. Pastor F.B. Meyer tells a story of waking up one morning early with A.B. Simpson at a conference. A.B. Simpson was the founder of the Christian and Missionary Alliance. And he woke up and he saw A.B. Simpson just kneeling and weeping in prayer with his hands clutching a globe, clutching the world. If you've been at East for some time, you know, you know that regularly elders will come up to pray and you'll notice they pray for the president, governor, mayor. They pray for international crises, refugee crises. You say, why do we do that? This is why. God, have mercy on us if we become a church, as Stott said, that worships a little village God of our own devising. We're called to embrace the world in prayer because God embraces the world. We simply pray his desires, and his desire is for the world, all kinds of people, all kinds of people groups. And that's why our prayers embrace that, because our prayers embrace God's desire. Do your prayers embrace the world? Are your children growing up in a household where they're learning to embrace the world through prayer. Because you don't just teach your children how to pray, you're teaching them through prayer to embrace God's desire. And his desire is for the world and for all kinds of people. How does the church remain faithful to the gospel mission? First, by praying God's desires. But second, by ordering the heart, ordering the heart. Now, now, what's a disordered heart? Disordered heart is simply a heart that has disordered loves. I mentioned it in the confession, but Augustine was an early theologian in the church, fourth, fifth century. At the age of 19, he was reading the, the works of a Roman philosopher named Cicero, and Cicero was saying that everybody desires a happy life, but nobody can seem to find it. That was the premise. That no child grows up and dreams of being unhappy and discontent in life. Right? As children, we grow up, we, we dream about a life that is full, that is happy, that, it, that we're content. And so Augustine set out to determine why People generally grow up and have conflict, frustration, and unfulfilled longings. And the place he landed 
was in disordered loves. He said, our lives are out of order. He said, what defines a person is primarily what they love. What defines a person is primarily what they love, not first and foremost their virtues. And then he goes on to say, virtues are actually forms of love. Take courage, right? Courage. Courage is loving your neighbor's well-being at the expense of your own safety. That's courage. Or honesty. Honesty is loving someone enough to tell them the truth, even if it puts you at a disadvantage or even if they reject you. So courage and honesty, virtues that we would hold up, are all about love. And Augustine goes on to say sin is ultimately a lack of love, either for God or, God or for others. And then he makes this very famous statement about sin. He says the essence of sin is disordered love. We love less important things more, and we love more important things less than we should, and this priority mess up in our lives leads us to unhappiness and disorder and a lack of content. Now, you say, what's this have to do with this passage? What does disordered loves have to do with what Paul's telling Timothy? Well, in verses 8 to 10, Paul is going to point out a problem in this church that is happening in the worship service, and he's going to address men, and then he's going to address women. And it's all around disordered loves. He starts with men. Verse eight. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Apparently, the anger in men's hearts was exposed in these worship services. As they led prayer, as they led the service, potentially as they taught, their anger was coming out. And notice what Paul connects their anger to. Anger and quarreling. Now, anger is a sign of disordered loves. Anger is the result of you loving something or someone more than Christ, and then that something or someone lets you down, and out comes anger. But notice here, combined with quarreling, we see one of the disordered loves that can absolutely rule a man's heart. And that is the love to be right. the love to be right, such that if someone disagrees with me, I, I will let everything loose to vindicate myself and to sabotage them and to disparage them because there is a need in my heart to be right. And so love to be right exceeds love for Christ and that produces anger. It produces anger. Men, your anger. I'm a man, okay? I'm including myself in this. Men, your anger is a sign that your loves are disordered. 
There's a lot, could be love for being right. Could be some other love that has become way out of proportion that has you angry. It's a sign of disordered loves. It's a sign that love for something has exceeded your love for Christ and therefore for others. Anger sabotages your worship. It sabotages your relationships. It's a threat to worship. It's a threat to the gospel going forth. It's a threat to peaceful relationships in the home. Why are you angry? That's the question you have to answer if you have any hope of your loves being ordered, of your heart being ordered. Paul moves from men and then he addresses women now. He addresses women in verses nine to 10. And the problem that was going on in this church, likewise also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Now, let me just say a couple things here. Paul is not saying here men should pray and women shouldn't. Everyone's called to pray. Nor is Paul saying that only men are angry hotheads and women are only the ones that are vain and care about their bodily appearance. Okay, he's not saying that. He's talking about tendencies here. The tendency in this church in Ephesus and I would say tendencies today as well. Apparently, the women in this church in Ephesus were imitating the braided hair, the gold, the costly attire of the Roman culture around them. And it was a Roman culture that was known for its sexual promiscuity. So they were following or keeping up with the trends, the culture around them, and it was distracting in worship. Just as men's anger was distracting worship, the way that women were dressing was distracting in worship. It was a threat to worship. Love for outward appearance had become more important than love for Christ and others. Outward appearance became the priority, not good works and character. Proverbs 31.30, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. It's the difference between outward beauty versus inward beauty. Outward versus inward beauty. Parents, as you raise your daughters in this world, you probably already have, but you're gonna run up against the keep up with trends and culture versus love for Christ and others. And you may have already had the, the tense fighting match between what you can wear and what you can't wear. Here's the problem. If all you do is fight that on a rule and your only answer for why is because I said so. That's just the rule of this house. It's not gonna go well. Now, children need to obey their parents, yes. There is obedience and submission, yes. But there's a reason why. And that's what Paul's describing here, is that you need to teach your daughters 
that they have a responsibility to protect the hearts of boys and men. There's a responsibility. In other words, love for Christ and love for others must exceed selfish love for fitting in or just mimicking the culture. That's a discipleship moment in your family with your children to help them see the why that ultimately it's down to a disordered love. And you wanna teach your children to love Christ and others more than anything else. And that falls in this category. Women, if you have an unhealthy concern with bodily appearance, you have to ask why. Just as men, if you have an anger problem, you have to ask why. Women, if you have an unhealthy concern for bodily appearance, you have to ask why. Because you answer that question, and now you have hope of starting to order your loves. Now you have hope that your, your heart could be ordered around Christ. How does the church remain faithful to the gospel mission? By praying God's desires, by ordering the heart, and finally, by following God's design. Now we arrive at the very controversial and difficult passage in verses, part of this passage in verses 11 to 15. The key to accurately interpreting these verses is understanding three truths. First, the location of these commands that Paul gives. Second, the cultural context of these commands. And then third, the reason behind these commands. So let's start first with the location of the commands. Paul is giving commands here for the public worship of a church. He's giving commands for a worship service. These are not commands for, or instructions for teaching and authority in the public square, in the academy, in the marketplace. These are commands for the public worship service. So, verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. That refers to the, the, the authoritative transmission of biblical truth in a worship service, which is preaching. This verse is not saying that women can't teach. God has gifted women in amazing ways to teach. In fact, in Acts 18.26, we learned that Priscilla and Aquila taught Apollos, that Apollos learned his theology from them. God gives amazing gifts to women to teach, and we have amazing women teachers in this congregation, and these gifts are to be used in the proper setting that God lays out. And that is to be used outside of preaching in a worship service because the preaching in a worship service is tied to authority and we'll get to that in a second. So that's the first, the location of the command. Second truth for accurately interpreting these verses is the cultural context of these commands. Now on the surface, verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness Verse 12, rather she is to remain quiet. 
Now, those verses on the surface sound awfully chauvinistic and awfully misogynistic. But what I want you to see is actually the opposite intent is true here. Because in first century culture, and even within traditions of Judaism, women were forbidden to learn. They were forbidden to learn. And so what Paul's actually saying here in this cultural context, first century, is actually very pro-woman. What he's saying is, let a woman learn. Take them seriously as disciples of Christ. The word quiet here uh, in the Greek is rarely used as a blanket prohibition against any kind of speech. This is not saying that a woman shouldn't talk. What it's saying is that that the situation should be set up so that women can learn and be discipled in their proper place. And, and with submissiveness, that's not suppression. That's not putting women down. It's just saying that they need to be able to learn and not have to take on all the roles that they're not called to take on in a public worship service where stuff gets disordered and it's chaotic and nobody can learn, right? They're, they're to learn and to be discipled. And so culturally speaking, in the first century, these verses would not have been read and received like we see them today. They actually would have been read to think very positively, wow, this is a call for women to learn. And the broader culture is saying they're forbidden to learn, right? So that's a positive. The third truth for accurately interpreting these verses the reason behind the commands. Verses 13 to 15, go back to creation. Genesis 2 and 3, verse 13. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. That's Genesis 2. Verse 14, this is Genesis 3. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, again, let's just take kind of surface. You read that and go, ah, wasn't Adam's fault. It was Eve's fault. Well, when you read the rest of Scripture, and when you read in Genesis 3, after they sinned, who does God come to first? Comes to Adam. Adam was responsible. And then you read the rest of the New Testament, and, and what is the sin of man? Whose account is it booked to? To Adam's. Adam was responsible. So this is not saying it was Eve's fault. Not at all. What this is saying is that in creation, when sin entered the world, the order of God's creation got turned upside down. How God had, has, had designed men and women in their different roles had gotten turned upside down. None of this is a statement of, about dignity or value. Right? Men, women, equal dignity, equal value. This is about roles. And what we see is when sin entered the world, God's design was rejected. The way God had designed men and women to work together seamlessly was rejected and turned upside down. Philip Jensen says it well. Eve's sin involved overturning the order of creation 
and teaching her husband. Similarly, Adam's sin came from listening to his wife in the sense of heeding and following her instructions. He was taught by her, thereby, thereby putting himself under her authority and reversing God's good ordering of creation. This passage, we focus on the role of men and women, but what I want you to see is you've got to broaden out and see that this is a picture of rejecting God's design. And the rejection of God's design goes way beyond role of men and women, man and woman. I don't have time, but you see where our culture is at. The rejection of God's design is all over the place. Paul here is speaking about a unique situation of that rejecting of God's design. So verses 11 and 15 are about following God's design. This is not about male or female superiority. They aren't about even suitability for leadership. They aren't about power. They are about faithfulness to God's word and his design and trusting his design. These verses are an invitation inviting God's word to shape the life of the church, not the intrusive winds of culture. Now, you've heard that a couple times. You're gonna see it throughout this book in Timothy and this letter of 1 Timothy. That This is an invitation to trust God's word to shape the church, not the intrusive winds of culture. We are all guilty of rejecting God's design. We're guilty of not praying his desires. We're guilty of our hearts being absolutely disordered and loving things more than Christ than we should. We're guilty of rejecting his design. What's the hope? You say, where's the hope? Verse 15. Yet she will be saved through childbearing. Now, this doesn't mean a woman is saved through giving birth to a child. It's not what Paul is saying here. There's a, there's a definite article in the original Greek that gives this some real powerful meaning. It says, yet she will be saved through the childbearing. Not just general childbearing, the childbearing. This is speaking of Eve. We're in Genesis 3. Genesis 3.15, God promises that Eve, the seed of the woman, would crush the head of the serpent who's the one that brought this disorder into God's world. And the seed of the woman, as you track it through the Old Testament all the way to the New, is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who came into God's world to bring order back to it, not just broadly speaking, but to individuals. If you've come to Christ, you have watched God bring order in his design back into your life. I've used this illustration before. But a fish is not free, is not alive outside the boundaries of water, right? A fish out of water is dying or dead. A fish is free and alive within the boundaries of water. And so too you are alive within God's design and boundaries, 
And Jesus Christ is the one who takes you from outside those boundaries where eventually you die and suffocate to bring you back into his good design for life. That's what Christ is doing. That's the mission we're on as a church, is to help people see there's a design for life. And within it, there is fruitfulness and life. Outside of it, there is, there's death and there's hardship and there's suffocation. And Jesus came to say, I've come to rescue you and bring you back into God's beautiful design. Let's pray. Father, we live in a disordered world. Whether we're reading social media, whether we're watching the news, this world is becoming increasingly fractured. Our culture's becoming increasingly broken and seemingly so far away from God's design. And yet, Father, you have called your church not to throw our hands up in frustration or to throw the walls up and hunker down, but to take the good news of Jesus into this culture. That it would see that there is one God, that there's one mediator, and that one God is a God of love that gave up his own son to bring order back to this world where there could be flourishing, human flourishing. Father, would you, by your spirit, bring us to the place of praying your desires, of ordering our own hearts, of trusting your design, even if it flies in the face of what everyone's doing or what this culture is doing, and would all of this be clothed in love Father, as our leaders go out this week, would you take this good news to the neighborhoods and to families? All for your glory and for your honor. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.